Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. Here is the agenda for what we're going to be talking about today. Um, So I'm going to introduce a few different types of therapy modalities that therapists practice from. Um, I always say there's no right or wrong um, therapy modality to choose from. Um, And at the same time, it can be helpful to hear a little bit about like the nuances and the differences between all of these. Um, And for each modality, I'll go into giving a basic preview over what this therapy modality is. Um, consideration. So how do you know which one might be the best fit for you? And I'll also give a preview into some of like the skills and interventions we use for each of these modalities. And then we'll end the presentation talking about, you know, if you are interested in seeking out therapy, some of the challenges that come up and as a therapist, just some of my suggestions as to how to navigate those challenges. So first we'll talk about something called cognitive behavioral therapy. And this diagram here is called the cognitive triangle, which is essentially the basis of this therapy. And so the idea here is that our thoughts, our behaviors, our emotions, they're all interconnected. They all affect one another. So the way I think affects how I feel, the way I feel affects how I behave, et cetera. And they're all interconnected. And so in CBT, what we do is we intervene at one point in the triangle. Meaning that, right, if I try to change my behavior, that in turn should change my thinking patterns, that should change my feelings. So we can intervene at any point. And so I'll take a minute now to talk about what does this look like if let's say we intervene at the cognitive level, so the thought point of the triangle. So let's say you get a cancer diagnosis and you have the thought of, I'll never feel happy again. And that causes your emotions to turn into hopelessness, maybe feeling depressed. And let's say the intensity of this is a 90 out of 100. And then this thought, this emotion impacts your behavior, right? So maybe you stay in bed all day, you stop responding to text messages from friends, from loved ones. So this thought is a completely understandable thought to have if all of a sudden you get a cancer diagnosis. And at the same time, we know that this thought might not necessarily be fully true, that you'll never feel happy again. And so something we do in CBT, and I'm giving a very watered down explanation of this, is we help people challenge their thoughts. So you might help someone challenge that initial thought by creating a more balanced thought. So maybe the more balanced thought is, I'm going to be really sad for a while, and it's going to take some time to feel any sense of happiness. The emotions are still probably going to be there, feeling hopeless and depressed, but maybe instead of it being at a 90%, maybe it's a 70%. And so maybe instead of staying in bed all day, you stay in bed for two hours and you respond to some of your texts, right? So the idea here is if we can change our thoughts, that might be able to change our emotions and actually change our behaviors. Another example is if we intervene at, let's say like the behavioral point of the triangle. Um, I imagine a lot of people have had this experience. I know I've had this experience where maybe you're not in the mood to go socialize, but you have plans and you're like, okay, I'm gonna go anyway. You don't think you're going to have a good time. You're really not in the mood and you go and you end up actually feeling better. 
right? So behaviorally, if we change our behavior and act opposite to what our emotion is telling us to do, that might in turn change our emotions that we're feeling. So some other information about cognitive behavioral therapy. So we have the cognitive piece, right? Which is what we're talking about. So we help patients increase their awareness of thoughts that are maybe not fully accurate, help them identify maladaptive patterns of thinking. And we're gonna talk more about that on the next slide. So an example of that might be catastrophizing um, and help people reframe unrealistic thoughts and creating more balanced adaptive thoughts. Now I always, also tell people when I talk about reframing our thoughts, I'm not talking about toxic positivity or invalidating yourself or minimizing your thoughts, but really trying to find thoughts that are more accurate based on the facts of the situation. So we have the cognitive piece, now we have the behavioral piece, behaviorally. So what do we, we help clients with? We help them engage in, um, actually I totally wrote this backwards. What I meant to say is, we help clients engage in more goal-dependent behavior as opposed to mood-dependent behavior. Um, so an example of, of this is um, last night, I had dishes to clean. I really wasn't in the mood to clean them. And if I were to engage in mood-dependent behavior last night, I would have not cleaned my dishes, would have just like gone to bed, right? But I don't wanna have a dirty kitchen. So I engaged in goal-dependent behavior. So even though I wasn't in the mood to let's say clean my dishes, right? I acted based on my goal. And the problem is that when we, there's, there's no issue with acting based on your mood. We all do that. The problem becomes when we do that too much, and that's what can often result in depression and anxiety. Um, so we help clients act in more goal-dependent manners. Um, especially when it comes to depression, we do something called behavioral activation. Um, so we would actually help you identify what are your values, what's important to you, and help you start to schedule into your week activities that make you feel a sense of joy and activities that make you feel a sense of mastery or sense of accomplishment. And then we also help clients decrease avoidant behaviors um, that maybe feel good in the moment but cause more issues in the long term. Right. So let's say you get a cancer diagnosis, right? And now you are just so scared to ever go to the doctor again. And it's just traumatizing, right? So you stop going to the doctor, you stop um, watching TV shows or movies that talk about doctors, right? You just, your world becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. And so we help people um, basically face their fears, face these anxieties. So now within CBT, I mentioned maladaptive patterns of thinking, also known as cognitive distortions. I know there's a lot on this slide, but bear with me here. So cognitive distortions, the definition of that is distorted thought patterns that are often exaggerated and it skews our perception of reality. It makes us feel really intense emotions. So if you think about it, if you have thoughts that are more exaggerated or extreme, you're going to have more extreme, intense emotions. And we're gonna talk about this at the end, but cognitive distortions can actually be helpful at times. And a lot of the time it can be unhelpful and we all engage in cognitive distortions. But sometimes it gets to a place where we're having so many of these, it can make us feel more depressed, more anxious. So I'm gonna briefly go through these because um, I really wanna give a window in into some of the stuff we focus on in CBT. So we have all or nothing thinking, also known as black and white thinking. So an example, if I'm not perfect, I have failed. 
And I also included some um, examples of thoughts that maybe especially with cancer people might have that fall into these different distortions. So for all or nothing thinking, right, maybe you are venting to your spouse about your feelings about your diagnosis and they see something that just doesn't feel helpful, right? And you have this thought they always see the wrong thing, right? The word always there probably isn't fully accurate. Then we have mental filters. So we only pay attention to certain types of evidence, right? So I only ever get bad news, right? Again, maybe you, you've gotten a lot of bad news and that is not to say that hasn't happened, right? But the word only ever, probably not fully accurate. And we have jumping to conclusions. So we have two types. We have mind reading. We imagine we know what other people are thinking, right? So they're probably judging me. They think I'm weird. Um, or fortune telling, predicting the future, right? So I know I've had this thought for me of like, my cancer is going to spread, right? But I don't know that to be true, right? I, I don't know what the future is. I don't have a crystal ball, right? Or a thought that someone else may have, I'll never feel happy again. And we have overgeneralizing. So seeing a pattern based upon a single event um, and then being overly broad in the conclusions that we draw. So nothing ever, nothing in my life ever goes right. Disqualifying the positive. So we discount the good things that happen, right? Or that we've done, right? I always mess up, right? And we're not looking at the times where maybe we did something right. Then we have catastrophizing. So blowing things out of proportion or the opposite, minimizing. Right. So someone asks you how you're doing after your diagnosis or treatment or years later, and you say, I'm doing fine, even though maybe you're not. Um, or maybe you think that your diagnosis isn't a big deal, right? You're trying to minimize your feelings and thoughts around it. Our four last ones, we have emotional reasoning. This one I think is sometimes a little bit confusing to fully grasp, but the idea here is that it says, assuming that because we feel a certain way, what we think must be true. So I feel embarrassed, so I must be an idiot. I feel so overwhelmed, so that must mean I'll never feel better. I feel anxious, so that must mean I'm going to get bad results on my scan, right? Um, I feel anxious about going to this party, so I shouldn't go because I won't have a good time. And we have labeling, so assigning a label to yourself or someone else. I'm so ugly. I'm so lazy. Um, then we have should or must. This is my favorite out of all of these. Um, so the idea here is that when we use these critical words like should or must, it can make us feel guilty or like we've done something wrong. Or when we apply these words to other people, it's inevitably going to make us feel incredibly frustrated, right? So an example, I should be over my diagnosis by now. I shouldn't be so upset, right? So we're placing these unfair expectations on ourselves. but who says you should or shouldn't be over your diagnosis, right? Who gets to decide these things? Um, I am a New Yorker. I live like right outside of Manhattan and I am a fast walker. And sometimes when I'm in the city, people are walking pretty slow. And I have those thoughts of like, they should just walk faster, right? They shouldn't walk so slow. Um, but like, who am I to say that they should or shouldn't walk faster, right? Or slower. Um, and so something that we talk about in therapy is instead of using these should statements, it can be helpful to use preferential thinking. So words such as I wish, I would prefer, I would like, right? So I would prefer they would walk faster, right? I wish they walked faster, right? I wish she didn't say that. And then our last one's personalization. So taking full responsibility for something that maybe wasn't your fault and vice versa, right? So I caused my cancer. So some considerations when it comes to CBT, how do you know if this is a good choice of therapy for you? 
Um, so if you're finding yourself feeling depressed, you're no longer finding that you enjoy the things, the activities, the hobbies that you once enjoyed. Um, maybe you find it difficult to do daily tasks. It's hard to get out of bed. It's hard to shower. It's hard to cook, do all of those things. Um, CBT can also be good if you find yourself ruminating um, and experiencing a lot of negative thoughts, right? And you just keep replaying the same thing in your head again and again. Or if you're finding yourself experiencing post-traumatic stress symptoms, right? Some PTSD, um, which can often happen with medical diagnoses and um, a lot of medical traumas. And there are just some symptoms that we often see with PTSD. So some of these I touched on, but to just sort of wrap up this part of the presentation on CBT, some of the main interventions that we as therapists use with clients who are coming into us we use behavioral activation for depression. So that's what I mentioned before, increasing pleasurable activities, sense of accomplishment. We have exposure and response prevention for anxiety, right? So let's say you have a phobia of needles, right? We'll do something called exposure work where maybe first I have you look at a photo of needles and then watch a video of needles and then watch a video of someone getting um, a blood draw and so on and so forth. Then we gradually expose someone to um, something that feels more and more anxiety provoking with the hope that eventually they'll be able to tolerate this thing that they've been avoiding. Cognitive restructuring, that more so ties back to what I was talking about, about those cognitive distortions and helping us reframe our thoughts. That can be really helpful for depression and anxiety. Um, and we also have cognitive processing therapy, which is a type of therapy we use for people with PTSD. So that was cognitive behavioral therapy. Now we move into acceptance and commitment therapy, also known as ACT. Um, this is sort of stems from CBT. It's a newer type of therapy. Um, it's one that I definitely use myself in my personal life. I use a lot of these skills. Um, so the main idea behind ACT, um, they, they basically say that painful emotions and thoughts are not the problem. We all have painful emotions and thoughts. The problem happens when we try to avoid thinking and feeling these things. So we say control is the problem, not the solution. Um, so to flush that out a little bit, right? If you have someone who feels like they can't tolerate these thoughts and emotions, they might turn to alcohol or drugs to numb out. They might throw themselves into their work and neglect all the other parts of their lives because they just want to avoid feeling and thinking these things. And so you know, we don't have a good way of helping people completely avoid their painful thoughts and emotions, right? We know that when we avoid them, it often ends up coming back even stronger. Um, at least I and the field, we don't have a way of getting rid of these things. If any of you do, please let me know. I'll be out of a job, but that would be great, um, right? But we don't have a way of getting rid of these things. And our attempts to push them away is what ends up causing a lot of issues. So with ACT, what we do is we stop pulling on the rope. So what I mean by that is imagine a tug of war between you and your brain, right? So you have the painful thoughts and emotions tugging you and you're like, no, I don't want to feel or think about these things. So you try and pull away, but you're never really successful, right? Because those painful emotions and thoughts still come back. They come rushing back. So with ACT, what we say is, can we learn to just drop that rope? Can we learn to accept these painful thoughts and emotions that come up for us? And what ACT does is helps us change our relationships to these painful thoughts and these painful feelings. So that's not to say we have to like these thoughts, we have to like these feelings, right? But what we do is we say, okay, you know what? Our attempts to try and get rid of them 
these attempts aren't working and they're wasting my time. They're wasting my energy. And so I'm going to stop struggling with them. And so with ACT, one of the main points is that we help people build a meaningful life, even when there are painful parts of that life, right? Because pain is inevitable. We're all going to go through painful situations, um, especially when it comes to cancer, right? So much pain that comes with that. Um, and so with ACT, we focus on mindfulness. When I say mindfulness, I don't necessarily mean meditation. I personally am not, um, I don't find meditations helpful for me. So when I say mindfulness, what I mean is being present in the moment, because so many times we live our lives in the future. We're worrying about what's going to happen or we're ruminating on the past and it takes us out of the present moment. We miss out. Um, we also focus on acceptance, right? So. Um, how can we accept our thoughts, right? That doesn't mean you have to like your thoughts, right? But how can we change our relationship to them? Um, and values, we help people identify what their values are and identify the barriers to living their life in alignment with those values. And then actually figure out a way, how do I do things that align with these values of mine, these things that are important to me? So some considerations, how do you know if ACT is a good choice of therapy for you? So you're just feeling stuck, maybe stagnant in your life and in your thoughts. Um, you feel like you don't know who you are or what your values are, and you feel a little bit lost. Um, you find you're always trying to push away your thoughts, your memories, your emotions, and it just doesn't work. Um, you're consumed by the past or the future, and it's hard to be in the present in your life. Um, and, and more specifically to cancer, right? Maybe you're denying your diagnosis. You have difficulty accepting your new normal. Um, and, and this is very common, right? When you get like a painful diagnosis, you might have times where you just, you're sort of in denial about it. And that's okay. That's not to say you need therapy, but if that's happening for a long period of time, therapy could potentially be helpful. Um, and what's actually interesting is there's been a lot of research that's come out that's shown that ACT is actually really effective for people with terminal diagnoses or chronic health issues. So this is called a hexaflex. Um, and these six things here are the main things we focus on in ACT. But for today, I'm just going to give you like a tiny preview window into one of these, which is diffusion. It says, observe your thoughts without being ruled by them. So let's first define what cognitive fusion is. So cognitive fusion, as it says here, is when you give your thought your full attention, you buy into the thought, you believe the thought as fact. And then what often happens is you fall into a thought spiral. You have maybe an unhelpful thought, and then it leads to 10 more unhelpful thoughts, right? You create this whole narrative. Opposite of cognitive fusion is cognitive defusion, which is what we help people do in this therapy. So as it says here, we want to help people create distance between themselves and the thoughts so that the thoughts have less power over them. So instead of viewing these thoughts as facts, we try and view them for what they are, string of letters that your brain has generated, string of words, nothing more, nothing less. It's really just words. Um, and we don't need to become so attached and fused to our thoughts. But we also know that we can't get rid of our thoughts. So with cognitive diffusion, we change our relationship to our thoughts. We change how we respond to them. So instead of fully buying into them and being on autopilot and taking our thought as fact, we can notice the thought without judgment, ask ourselves, is this thought helpful or is this thought unhelpful? And if it's unhelpful, what we do, and I'm gonna talk in a minute or two about how we actually practically do this, we create some separation between ourselves and the thought. 
so that we can recenter our attention to the things that are more important to us. So with cognitive diffusion, we're not getting rid of the thought, but we're changing our relationship to it so that we can coexist with it. So what we do with cognitive diffusion is we ask, is this thought helpful or unhelpful? So you might be asking like, how do we know if a thought is helpful or unhelpful, right? So if you're diagnosed with cancer, right? And let's say you're worried that it's gonna spread, right? And the thought is, I'm worried my cancer is gonna spread. In some capacity, that thought might actually be helpful. It might prompt you to do some research. It might prompt you to get your scans, get all the information, right? But there might be times where that thought really isn't helpful, right? It just makes you ruminate. It makes you sad. It makes you worried, right? So, you know, it's sort of context dependent whether the thought is helpful or unhelpful. So let's go through an example. Um, so let's say you have the thought that nothing's ever going to get better. If you're fused with that thought, what's going to happen is you're going to have a lot of other unhelpful thoughts, right? You're gonna have the thought, I'm gonna feel this way forever. There's no point in trying, nothing's gonna get better. And that's gonna impact your behavior, right? Maybe you stop responding to phone calls and texts. You stay in bed all day. You no longer do the things that you once enjoyed doing. If we were to practice cognitive diffusion, and again, on the next slide, we'll talk about how to do this. So you have that initial thought, nothing's ever gonna get better. And actually, I'm gonna go up for a second. So one strategy for cognitive diffusion is when you notice yourself having a thought that's unhelpful, it's not helping you, what you do is you externalize the thought. So the way we do this is we say in your head, I notice I'm having the thought that nothing's ever gonna get better, right? Or I notice I'm having the thought that tomorrow might suck, right? And what it does is it creates some distance. It helps us notice that, okay, this is just a thought, right? So with cognitive diffusion, right, the thought, I notice I'm having the thought that nothing's gonna get better or my brain is telling me nothing's gonna get better, right? And, and that might change your behavior, right? Instead of just isolating yourself, right? You still might engage in your life and do things that feel meaningful to you. So a lot of words on here. I'm not gonna go through all of these, but I just wanted to um, share some examples. And actually there's one other thing I wanna share before we even go to the examples. Um, an analogy for cognitive diffusion that I sometimes use is if you've ever been in a room that has a clock, right, and the clock is ticking and all of a sudden you hear, right, the second hand moving, right, you hear it ticking, right, and maybe you didn't notice it for the past hour, but all of a sudden you notice it, and then maybe you tune, you tune it out, you don't notice it, and an hour later it comes back. That's sort of what cognitive diffusion is, is we create this degree of separation from our thought where we can sort of maybe tune it out, it's sort of in the background. And then at some point that thought's probably gonna come back. And so we use cognitive diffusion again and again and again. Um, and I wanna share an example of a time I used cognitive diffusion recently. Um, so I was on a vacation with my family over the summer. It was the first vacation I'd been on in a very long time. I was really excited. And while we were there, my sister and her husband got COVID. Um, and I was really, really worried that I was gonna catch it. A, didn't know how bad I would get it. B, I was like, oh my God, I spent all this money on a vacation. It's all going to go down the drain. And I was so incredibly anxious. Um, and it was taking me out of the present moment. I couldn't focus on what was in front of me. I couldn't enjoy myself. So I was like, okay, let me practice what I preach. Use some cognitive diffusion. So I start trying to externalize some of these thoughts I have, right? The thought of I'm going to get COVID, right? Or this vacation is ruined. So I start practicing it. But then what I realize is I start to have these thoughts of, you know, I hate that I'm having these anxious thoughts. You know, these thoughts are going to like ruin my trip. Um, I wish I didn't feel so anxious, right? I was sort of like fighting against that anxiety, judging my thoughts. 
right? And becoming so fused with this thought that, oh my God, these anxious thoughts are going to ruin my trip, right? And so then what I tried to do is diffuse from that thought because I was like, okay, this thought of like, oh my God, these anxious thoughts are going to make me have an awful time is not hopeful and not necessarily true. And so what I really tried to do is practice this diffusion and remind myself I can coexist with unhelpful, anxious thoughts. I don't need to get rid of them, right? I just need to know that it's just a thought and that this thought doesn't have to control me. Um, so some other examples here, I'll just go through two of these very briefly. Um, number two, it talks about name the story, the book on the shelf, um, right? So if there's a thought that comes up for you, um, maybe the thought is no one likes me, right? So what you do is you imagine that that's the um, title of a book, right? The no one likes me book. And instead of opening that book and reading all the thoughts that come thereafter about why nobody likes you and how awful you are and worthless, instead of opening that book, we're going to notice when that thought comes up, we're going to visualize that thought as the title of a book. And instead of opening the book, we're just going to place it back on the shelf. So it's no longer, you know, in the center of our vision, no pun intended, right? It's in our periphery, right? The thought's still there, but we don't need to open it. We don't need to be fused with it. Um, there's some other ideas here, and I figure maybe we could send out these slides and, and people can look at some other ideas for practicing cognitive diffusion. So now we go into dialectical behavioral therapy, which is another type of therapy that I specialize in and that I love. So it was initially created for people with suicidality and personality disorders. But what they found over the years is that it's effective for a lot of different mental health issues, particularly when people find there's a lot of instability in their lives. So whether that's intense, unstable emotions, low self-image, issues in relationships. And what DBT is comprised of, it's a more intensive treatment than the other ones we were talking about. You have your individual therapy appointments every week. You have group therapy where you learn concrete, tangible skills to help you. And you also get something called phone coaching where you can call your therapist typically any time of day or night for some coaching. And the four things DBT focuses on are mindfulness, interpersonal effectiveness, so helping you with your interpersonal relationships, asserting yourself, maintaining these relationships, managing conflict emotion regulation. So how do I cope with painful emotions that come up and distress tolerance? So what do I do when I'm in like literal crisis mode and my emotions are a 10 out of 10? So who is DBT good for? If you find yourself struggling with self-harm, urges and thoughts of suicide, you find yourself having a lot of relationship issues, both platonically, romantically, you feel a lot of high intense emotions that last for a long time. Um, DBT is also really helpful for people who've experienced a lot of trauma or invalidation. You've been told that your emotions are wrong, you're um, too sensitive, or you find yourself just struggling with a lot of mental health issues. So I'm going to focus on one particular skill in DBT that I want to share with everybody here. It's called radical acceptance. And I would say out of every therapy technique I'm aware of or skill, I think this is absolutely the hardest one. And is also um, can be the most life-changing skill. So when I was in grad school, I actually had a professor who specialized in DBT. She's like very well known in the field. And she shared this equation with me, which I felt was life-changing for myself. So the idea here is that you have something painful that happens in life. If we can accept that it happens, it doesn't get rid of the pain, the pain is still there. But when we deny that pain, so pain plus denial, 
that pain turns into suffering. So when we deny the pain, we're basically adding on layers of pain and it intensifies and exacerbates the pain and turns it into suffering. When I say denial, what I mean, I'm gonna go to the next slide real quick. When I say denial, what I mean is non-acceptance. What does that look like? In terms of thoughts that might look like, I can't deal with this, this isn't fair, things shouldn't be this way, it's not right, things should be different. And none of this is to say that it's wrong to have these thoughts. These are very normal thoughts, especially with a cancer diagnosis. The problem becomes when we get stuck in these thoughts for a long period of time. So this is what I mean by denial. Um, and so what radical acceptance is, is when we practice accepting our situation and really trying to move away from that line of thinking of what should be, right? So the idea here, suffering doesn't come from the pain itself. Suffering happens when we become so attached to what we feel life should look like. And again, that's not to say that cancer is fair or okay, or that we should be happy about it, not at all, right? But when we get lost in those thoughts of it shouldn't be this way, it shouldn't be this way, it's not fair, right? It ends up making us feel that much worse. Um, and so acceptance, again, it doesn't mean that you're agreeing with what's happening or resigning yourself to it or justifying it. It doesn't mean that you're not taking action to maybe try and help yourself. It just means that you're accepting that this situation has happened, right? Accepting what has happened in this present moment. I once had a patient who said this line on the bottom, which I love. She said, radical acceptance, it's not accepting what happened. It's accepting that it happened. Um, so again, there is a place, especially with cancer, there is a place for having, being stuck in denial and non-acceptance, absolutely grief, disappointment, anger, bitterness. It is so normal. The suffering results from when the initial pain is prolonged because we're stuck in this non-acceptance place. So I want to give two examples of radical acceptance to really like paint a picture as to what this looks like. And then we'll talk about practically how do we practice this. Um, so imagine that you are in prison for life. You are convicted for a crime you did not commit. You objectively did not commit this crime. You were falsely accused. You appealed the verdict, um, but the ruling wasn't overturned and you are stuck in prison for life, um, right? So what are your options? well, you're not going to be able to get out of jail, right? And it's also unrealistic to expect you to be happy that you are in prison for life, right? But we do sort of have two options, right? Um, so option one, right? You can stay in that non-acceptance place of being miserable and telling yourself, this isn't fair, things shouldn't be this way. And again, that's not to say that those thoughts are not true, right? It isn't fair right? But those thoughts just aren't helping you, right? It's going to make you feel worse, right? You can spend every day crying, beating people up, beating yourself up, um, or you can radically accept the situation. Doesn't mean you're happy about it, right? You can be really angry about it. You can be angry about a situation and accept it, right? And you can find a way to build a meaningful life there, right? So one example of radical acceptance, right? So with radical acceptance, we can turn unendurable agony into endurable pain. One other example um, that some of us could probably all relate to, you're driving in traffic. Let's say you have an important holiday dinner with your family um, and you and your spouse are stuck in traffic, bumper to bumper traffic. You're gonna be like an hour late, right? You can get saturated in your anger and frustration. 
which would look like maybe these thoughts, right? This always happens to me. I'm such an idiot. I should have left earlier. The whole day is ruined. You might even notice some cognitive distortions in here, right? You ruminate, your emotions intensify, and the drive sucks, right? Or we can try and practice some radical acceptance around it. Realize that given the circumstance, there's no way to change it, right? These thoughts aren't going to help you change the outcome, right? And it's normal to feel frustrated, right? Um, that makes sense, right? But maybe instead of these initial thoughts, we practice some radical acceptance and have these thoughts, right? I'm going to be late. I'm disappointed. I wish I left earlier, right? Instead of the I should have, right? And I can't change the situation. And instead of ruminating and your emotions intensifying, your emotions remain the same, but maybe you listen to a podcast, right? Or you have like an interesting conversation with your spouse. So how do we actually practice radical acceptance? Um, it's not easy. You don't arrive at a destination where you have radically accepted a situation. We vacillate. It's normal to vacillate between acceptance and non-acceptance, right? So we constantly have to sort of pull our brains back to this radical acceptance place. So what we do, we allow ourselves to first notice any urges we have to not want to accept the situation, right? So practice radical acceptance around your reluctance to want to practice radical acceptance, right? Um, validate that it's normal that, okay, maybe in this moment, I want to stay in this non-acceptance phase. Describe in detail what you need to accept without exaggerating or minimizing just the facts. When we are in pain, we tend to catastrophize, right? And so what we want to do here is we want to radically accept just the facts of the situation, not all the worst case scenarios. Think of the benefits of radically accepting the situation. How might it make me feel better? Remind yourself, in this moment, reality cannot be changed. That's not to say you can't try and change things in the future, but in this moment, reality is as it is. Notice those should statements, right? Or notice any judgments you're having of yourself. Avoid labeling your emotions as good or bad. Remind yourself that there are causes for this reality outside of your control, right? If we're thinking about cancer, right? We're not saying that, you know, we want you to get that diagnosis, right? Or that we're happy about it, right? But there are causes for this reality, right? Maybe there was some genetic predisposition, right? And even if we don't understand the causes or know what they are, right? We, we, we um, benefit from just accepting there are causes, even if we're not sure what they are. Allow yourself to feel any emotion that arises and validate those emotions for yourself. And also remind yourself that these emotions are temporary. There's never been an emotion that you have experienced for weeks and weeks on end, right? Emotions come, they go, they leave, and they come back. Um, imagine what life would be like if you accepted the situation, right? What would you do? What would you be doing with your time and try doing those things? Um, and then we can also use relaxation, mindfulness to help us cope with painful emotions that come. And I said this earlier on in the PowerPoint, right? But accepting that life can be worth living even when we experience such awful, painful, horrendous things in our lives. So the last therapy I'm going to briefly talk about is psychodynamic therapy. Um, and I will also share as a caveat that I do not specialize in psychodynamic therapy. Um, so I'm probably not going to do this one justice, but I wanted to include it um, because I myself, I've been in psychodynamic therapy, even though I don't specialize in it. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful type of therapy can be incredibly helpful. Um, so it's more of that traditional talk therapy that maybe you see on like a TV show or movie. Um, main idea, it helps people recognize repressed and unconscious emotions and thoughts and beliefs that might be impacting their behavior. Um, there's a huge focus on early childhood experiences, early life experiences, and helping you understand 
how those things have shaped and molded you and impacted and continue to impact your current relationships, the way you view yourselves and the world around you. Um, some considerations here, who is psychodynamic therapy good for? Um, it's specifically good if you feel like you want to be self-reflective, right? If you have the capacity to do that um, and think more deeply, share more deeply, this can be really good for you. Um, you're willing to delve deeper into your past. Um, you're looking for longer-term therapy. Psychodynamic therapy is a longer-term therapy. The first three that I mentioned are more short-term. Short-term, we're talking maybe six months to a year, maybe a few years. Psychodynamic therapy, sometimes that can be a decade. Um, psychodynamic therapy, you know, it's not as much of a focus on like concrete, tangible strategies um, versus like the first three where it's a little bit more concrete. Um, and so if you're looking for a place to just sort of talk openly, freely, not really have much structure to your session, right? Um, psychodynamic therapy can be helpful. Um, an analogy I use for this is if your house is on fire, the first three types of therapy can be helpful because they're focused on the present moment and helping you figure out how to problem solve. How do I fix this? Once you're out of the burning house, right? And now your house awfully has burnt down, right? Psychodynamic therapy can be really helpful to process and talk through those things. So just to, to highlight the differences, the first three therapies are more short-term. They're more focused on the present. They're more goal-oriented. So what are my goals? How am I going to get there? And it's more structured. The sessions are more structured. You're likely going to have homework in between sessions. Um, we always say 80% of change happens outside of session. Only 20% happens inside of session. So homework might look like, I might tell a client, I want you to exercise three times this week. I want you to challenge your thoughts. I want you to hang out with a friend. Psychodynamic therapy, more long-term, more focused on both the past and present and is less structured. So wrapping up here, um, challenges and suggestions. If you are looking for a therapist, um, and let's say you go to psychologytoday.com, great place to look for a therapist. And you're, you leave this talk and you're like, I want acceptance and commitment therapy. When you're looking online, many therapists will say that they specialize in every therapy under the sun when in fact they do not. So if you go to a therapist, what you can do is ask them even some questions based on my PowerPoint here and be like, hey, I want like acceptance and commitment therapy. I saw you post that online, but like, I want to get a better sense of like, how much you actually incorporate that into your work. Because oftentimes people say they do one thing, but they don't actually. Um, what's really important to note, the research tells us that the therapeutic relationship, so how you feel about your therapist and the relationship there is the biggest predictor for positive outcomes in therapy. Um, so at the end of the day, the therapy modality isn't as important as the relationship. So don't be afraid to shop around if you feel like you and your therapist are not a good fit. If you have financial constraints, especially with a cancer diagnosis that often comes up and you can't afford to see a therapist, um, if you go to like a local university, oftentimes they have clinics that are being run by therapists in training and they're being supervised by seasoned therapists. So you should get good quality therapy. Oftentimes they offer very cheap sliding scale therapy for as little as like five to $10. Group therapy can also be really helpful, especially when we're thinking about cancer and how isolating it can be. It can help decrease that loneliness or shame that you're feeling, make you feel more connected. Um, also, there are therapists who specialize in cancer or chronic health issues that can be helpful to look into. 
Um, and ironically, I also believe not everybody needs therapy. Um, I think people can benefit from it, but I also don't think we always need to be in therapy. Um, so with that, I guess I will open it up and see if anybody has any questions. And I'm looking at the chat and seeing there are potentially questions in there. Yes, Ali, I see the same. I see a question from Val and she just says, what's your recommendation for the occasional brief backsliding into the grieving process of an OM diagnosis? Um, I live my life pretty much in between those quarterly scans and I feel like I'm doing great and then I'm not. And I tend to judge myself for having these feelings, even if briefly. Um, can I just, before you jump in, I will just say that I think that when you have quarterly scans, it's like a new level of hell. <laughs> it's, it's its own crazy because when you have scans once a year, you're kind of thrust back into that place every 12 months, maybe every 11 months. If your you know, lead up is, is build up. If that build up is lasting for a month or two, when you have scans every three months, you can almost barely get through the scan and the recovery process from the trauma of having the scan all over again and the fear coming back up. And then you're just thrust right back into it again. So just knowing that has helped me at least over the last three years of, of having scans every three months. Um, the other thing too, is that if you are finding it too hard to deal with, just, you know, having the conversation with your medical oncologist and just saying, look, this is affecting me on an emotional and a mental capacity level. Like I need to, I need to talk about maybe doing scans every four months or every six months and just consider a different frequency just for you for a time so that you can kind of get a better handle on how you're feeling. Um, because that is an important part of what you experience in this diagnosis for sure. Yeah, but absolutely. To you. Yeah, no, I would totally agree with everything you said, Danae. Um, I think too, Val, like something that I think is so key here and, and what you said in your last sentence of um, your chat I judge myself for having the feelings, even if briefly, right? Um, and that's where the radical acceptance piece can be really helpful of accepting that, like radically accepting these feelings and, you know, really working on noticing when you're judging yourself, right? Because you're absolutely right. This is, as human beings, we do this all the time, right? We feel sad because we're anxious, right? We're like, oh, like, I hate that I feel so anxious. This sucks right? We're judging our anxiety, our emotion or ourselves, and it makes us feel worse. Or we have anxiety about our anxiety, right? Oh my God. I know before my scans, I'm always like anxious. Oh my God. Anxiety on top of it. <laughs> exactly. Right. Like, oh my God, I know these next two weeks are going to be awful. I'm going to be so anxious and I don't want to be anxious. And I'm anxious about feeling anxious. Right. And so I think one of the biggest things, Val, is I think these emotions that come up, they're so normal and they suck. Um, it sucks. There's no way around it. Um, and I think one of the best things to do is, like I said, notice when you're having those judgments, right? Notice when you're judging yourself and saying, oh, why am I feeling this way, right? Because you can't control your emotions, right? We cannot. Our emotions happen um, regardless of whether we want them to or not, right? And like I was saying, can we find a way to change our relationship to our emotions, right? So one thing we can do is ask ourselves, what is the function of this emotion, right? What's the function of anger? I was talking to a client about this the other day, right? We have anger because it indicates to us that our goal has been blocked or something important to us um, is being impeded against, right? Or a value of ours is being crossed, right? And anger motivates us to fight, to change it, right? What's the function of anxiety? Anxiety tells us that something is wrong and it motivates us to fix it. Now, of course, especially with cancer, right? We can't necessarily always do that, right? But it can be helpful instead of judging our emotions to get curious about it, right? What is my emotion trying to tell me? 
And instead of viewing it as this awful thing, right? Trying to view it as, okay, it's, it's my, my brain is trying to send me a message. What is this message? And then pairing that with some coping skills and especially something like acts, acceptance and commitment therapy or dialectical behavioral therapy. Those can offer you really, really helpful tools to help calm you down. It's not going to get rid of the emotion, right? It makes sense that you're anxious. So understandable, right? But it's going to help you feel like you can cope with it a little bit better and take the edge off. Oh, that's such a good point. And I, I just wanted to, to point out something that you said earlier in the session, and it was, well, I guess it was just towards the end of your, your radical acceptance section. It was this idea that it's not, there's not some destination to that you reach, right? There's not some destination in therapy in in self-help in, in mental health that you just ultimately reach this point where you just suddenly never have an issue. You never have an intrusive thought again, or you never have a moment where you're judging your emotions when they come up. Those are always going to be things that happen. The difference is your capacity and your awareness around them, your capacity to handle it and the tools that you have um, when say fear and anxiety come up versus maybe the tools and the resources you had before you were involved in therapy or you did some self-help or you read a book or you you know experienced the podcast, you were part of a group therapy group. The There's a... Um, Oh, I, I'm trying to remember what it was from. I don't even remember what it was from, but there was a, someone that I listened to and they talked about, about this idea that when we are experiencing fear, it's that we're forgetting every available resource. And I love that acronym because a lot of the times we get caught in that, that spiral of the judging of the thoughts and the having of the thoughts and the, the kind of, like you said, they just kind of keep going. And um, ultimately when we're experiencing fear, which I think is probably one of the most common feelings that we have fear and anxiety and a cancer diagnosis it, it just leads us to that place where if we're not careful, like you said, we can get stuck in the thoughts. And if we're stuck in the thoughts, then fear is winning. Um, but if we can just kind of remember to question and to, like you said, ground yourself in what you know, ground yourself in, in the things that you're, um, that are true, then those are, those are some really helpful skills. And I mean, Ali has broken down three, three, four, 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 I think four, you broke down four like modalities of therapy. And I mean, I have, I am fairly certain in all of the years that I've done various different types of therapy that I've done a little bit of all of these at some level. I think that that's maybe normal if you have been involved in therapy for a long time, like I have, um, but I will say that like the awareness and, and the, the practice that comes from that, it all adds up to help. And I think that that's, that's an important thing to recognize is that you build those resources over time. And so if this looks overwhelming, like maybe just pick the one that resonates with you the most and just start somewhere small. Yeah. And like Danae said, right, like you've experienced, you, you're looking at these and you're like, okay, like, I feel like I've done a little bit of all of these, right? Sometimes I say that like at the core of it, a lot of these therapies are the same. We just get to, to this idea or this skill in a different way based on the therapy. Um, one, one last thought I was also just having today as you were speaking about, I was thinking about your question is, I promise you this is related, but um, my sister's a big rock climber and I go rock climbing with her sometimes and gotten into it more so in the past like year or two. And sometimes I'll, I'm like rock climbing and I look down and I'm like, oh crap, this rope breaks, I'm done, this is it. Um, and I like start to freak out a little. And then I remind myself, okay, like I am already on this wall me worrying about if this rope breaks is not going to change the outcome. Either it breaks or it doesn't. 
right? Me worrying about this, no matter how much, no matter how many anxious thoughts that come up, it has no bearing on what actually happens, right? And so I know for myself with skin, sometimes I remind myself of that, right? No matter how much anxiety I have, it's, it's not helping me to ruminate. It makes sense that I'm feeling anxious. I'm going to feel anxious, right? But ruminating on it is not going to change the outcome. And so I try to remind mm-hmm. myself, I will deal with whatever awful outcome could potentially happen if it happens, because ruminating on it is making me go through that pain two times, right? Instead of potentially once. Yes. Such a good point. Well, Ali, that is all the time we have for now for questions. Um, Val, that was an excellent question. So thank you for sharing that. And you guys, as you have more questions, please don't hesitate to pose them. If you need me to send something over to Ali, uh, I'm happy to send that over to her after the fact. And if you're listening to the recording, we can also do the same. Um, Allie, can you see my, my slide and my screen now? Yes, I can. Okay. All right. So um, with that, I'm going to go ahead and excuse Allie. She has some other places to be today, but thank you so much for your time, Allie. This presentation was excellent. Um, you are such a rock star and you did such a good job of just explaining and breaking this down uh, in a really applicable way. And um, just from the chat, we just have another thank you from uh, Eleanor. So thanks for being here, Allie, and we will see you next time. Amazing. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Yep, of course. Thank you so much. All right. So just as by way of announcement, Rare Disease Day, again, we are coming up on Rare Disease Day. It's a leap year. So it's on February 29th is the official Rare Disease Day. February 27th, however, is called Capital Hill Day or Hill Day in the rare disease world. One of the biggest things that we need to do as rare cancer patients is advocate for change in legislation that supports what we need treatment-wise. We need, we need our legislators, we need our country, um, the government to support making sure that we have correct funding or that we have the adequate funding and that the attention is given to our rare cancer that it deserves. And also that the people's voices are heard in the sense that we need things to be accessible to us. We need the treatments to not have so many barriers to insurance. Like all of the different issues you guys run into as patients that have some logistical or political link We need your support on Capitol Hill. So if you live in this area, you're by the DC area, willing to drive or fly, we do have 10 spots for a a stipend that will go towards your hotel stay available. And you can get uh, access to one of those spots by emailing contact at acureinsight.org for details. If you have not subscribed to our monthly newsletter, Uh, I am now in charge of the monthly newsletter as well. So I would love to have you subscribe and just see the content that we share each month. We promise not to annoy you with emails. We will only email you when we have really important announcements. And every Friday is when our newsletter goes out. So our last newsletter just went out yesterday. If you missed it, um, I am so sorry about that, but feel free to subscribe here by screenshotting or using your phone to take this QR code. And if you have any questions, you want to get this uh, newsletter subscription link, it will also be included in the notes. So with that, I'm going to actually send us over. We're going to be moving over to our next session. And so I'm going to end this session and you guys pop over to session three and we will see you for the next one. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast brought to you by Castle Biosciences. Please be sure to subscribe. And if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, Leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.